It is six weeks since Hamas broke through the barriers confining the Gaza Strip and embarked upon a hideous rampage across southern Israel that killed around 1,200 people. It is not much less time since Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, promised a response that would, as he put it, change the Middle East. The means by which Israel intends to do this have been made clear enough. Israel has conducted an unrelenting bombardment of Gaza, which, according to local authorities, has killed at least 11,500 Palestinians, more than 4,500 of them children. Parts of the Gaza Strip have been rendered uninhabitable. Perhaps half of Gaza's housing has been destroyed or damaged. Comfortably more than half of Gaza's people have been displaced. What remains unclear is what the imagined endpoint of Israel's campaign might be. Israel's ambition of dismantling Hamas is understandable enough, but even if that is accomplished, the daunting question will linger. And now what? There will still be Israelis, and there will still be Palestinians, and they will still all be living in an area roughly the size of Vermont. What will the Middle East look like out the other side of this? If Hamas won't be governing Gaza, who will? And is it entirely ridiculous to wonder whether this war might prompt some hard thinking about the possibilities of peace? This is The Foreign Desk. No one wants to see their kids serving in the military in Gaza, and I don't think that's what Israel is hoped for. It is clear, though, that a new security situation was imposed on Israel by what Hamas did, and Israel is willing to feel secure that they can go back to the villages they were evacuated from near the border of Gaza. So I think that in the short term, you may see military presence of the IDF inside Gaza to a certain extent. On the longer term, hopefully the international mechanism and the empowerment of the PA will not make this a necessity anymore. You have a weak and unpopular Palestinian leadership in Ramallah that grows more and more irrelevant by the day. You have a far-right government in Israel that elements of that coalition are trying to erase the notion of a Palestinian nation. So. How do you get to a two-state solution where neither of the two parties are capable or in some cases even interested in pursuing that? You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. I'm joined first of all by Nimrod Gorin, Senior Fellow for Israeli Affairs at the Middle East Institute and founder of the Israeli foreign policy think tank Mitvim. Nimrod, first of all, I want to go back to quite early on in this conflict. We did hear Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu talking dramatically about reshaping or changing the Middle East. When he said that, do you think he had any idea exactly what he meant? I think he didn't, and I think it's uh, naturally so, because what happened on October 7, the terror attack by Hamas, was not envisioned by people in Israel, not the event itself, not the scope of losses, not the atrocities, not the implications. So it was a new reality, and when new realities uh, impose themselves, then it takes time to develop the strategy, how to respond, and what to aspire for in the long run, uh, especially the, the opportunity that may be opening up once the war ends, do not necessarily align with the policies that Netanyahu has been advocating and advancing over the last few years of him being in power. 
So a few weeks on from that declaration by Netanyahu with an extensive bombardment of Gaza having already occurred, the IDF now engaged in ground operations inside the Gaza Strip. Is it any clearer to you what end game Israel is working towards here, what Israel would regard as an acceptable resolution? Yes, and we can think about two channels here. You know, first is what are the uh, war objectives that Israel declared? And there we have quite a bit of clarity because consecutive Israeli speakers have been talking about the need to end the governing of Hamas over Gaza, the need to end the ability of Hamas to pose military threats to Israel, and the need to release the 200-plus Israeli hostages uh, held in Gaza. So those are three concrete war objectives. Some may be more difficult to obtain than others, but those are put on the table in a very clear way. The question what happens once and if these objectives are met, this is still not, uh, I think, decided. There are debates within the Israeli society and political system. I think there are debates within the international system as well. One thing that people are kind of united on on the international front is the need for eventual return of the Palestinian Authority to rule the Gaza Strip, as was the case before the 2007 takeover of Hamas of Gaza from the Palestinian Authority, violently. So going back to that modality and then transforming that into progress towards a two-state solution. Now, the current Israeli leadership does not necessarily support this scenario, but you may see a process of political change in Israel. So whatever Netanyahu says that goes beyond the immediate war objective may be less relevant because he will not necessarily be the prime minister that will shaping this reality for Israelis and for the region. Well, indeed not. And I do want to come to those longer term prospects you outline there, plus a few others. But in the shorter term, if we look at that war aim of Israel's of completely expunging Hamas as a military or governing factor in the Gaza Strip, and after the events of October 7th, that's not an unreasonable ambition. But how actually possible is it? Is Hamas actually destroyable? So there is a difference between the strategic goal and the tactical means to, to obtain it. And I think over the strategic goal, the, the macro picture, there is an Israeli agreement. So Israelis are generally united on that. That's why Israelis oppose an immediate ceasefire, let's say. Regarding the feasibility and the tactics that could lead to that, you know, first there is a deep trust among the Israeli public in the military. Unlike the lack of trust that Israelis now have in their government, according to the polls, Israelis still believe that despite the failures, the IDF is capable of achieving its uh, military goals if given enough space to do that. So it's a lot of the question of how much space will Israel have in terms of also, you know, international reactions and other limitations to go ahead and achieve that and what would be the cost of doing so. So I think it's a question about feasibility, but that's not only about the tactical aspects, but also in terms of what is the legitimacy of this activity that Israel does. So I think those are the questions at play at the moment. Let's try and look a bit further ahead to what the day after a possible defeat of Hamas might look like. One prospect that you did mention, which does seem like possibly the most straightforward way forward, is that the Palestinian Authority is restored to power in Gaza. But is that feasible? One, is that an outcome the people of Gaza would accept? And perhaps more importantly, is that something the Palestinian Authority would want to be involved in themselves? They know they're not popular in Gaza, and they can't possibly imagine that looking like an Israeli puppet authority would make them any more popular. 
many of these questions are questions that are beyond you know, my analysis, are questions that are very relevant to the Palestinian public and to Palestinian experts, because the question of how much is Israel the one to be shaping the future realities of Palestinian governance is very much on the table. I think it was said today by the French foreign ministry that it's not for Israel to decide who will govern Gaza later, because that's an internal Palestinian thing. So I think there will be a discussion about where is the Israeli involvement in shaping the next phase of Palestinian politics. And rightly, you say that for many Palestinians, they would not like to be seen as one that are addressing Israeli needs in that. So there's some delicacy in that. It will require international actors to step in, mostly countries from the region that have good ties with the Palestinian Authority, especially maybe Egypt and Jordan, but also countries like the US and some European actors. So there may be some sort of a transition process because we know where the Palestinian Authority is at currently in terms of its capabilities and in terms of its lack of legitimacy. There will be a need for some revitalizing, maybe some more clarity about succession, maybe uh, stepping up its capacities. It will not be happening overnight. So therefore, if the military stopped the operations that achieve the goals or whatever happens on the ground, I don't see the Palestinian Authority going in the day after. There will need to be some sort of constellation that is together with the Israeli military that will still have some military responsibility or control probably, governing the Gaza Strip, leading the reconstruction, doing the administration, empowering the PA, bringing it to a position in which it can resume control of Gaza in a way that it's much more legitimate, capable and moderate than maybe it is today. Do you anticipate some sort of permanent or semi-permanent Israeli presence being reimposed on the Gaza Strip, whether it is akin to the military checkpoints that existed there before the withdrawal in 2005, or whether, as some people have speculated, we might see Israel attempting to establish some sort of Korean-style dead zone, you know, annexing certain amounts of the Gaza Strip and establishing a perimeter in which nothing moves and nobody can cross? Uh, From a permanent perspective, I very much hope not, because I don't think that overall Israelis want to see a reoccupation of Gaza. Israelis were generally glad to see the IDF pull out of the Gaza Strip in 2005. There were sectors in Israel that were not happy seeing settlements being evacuated at the time, and some are even yearning to go back on the far right of Israeli politics, which is now having a substantial role in the government. But generally speaking, within the Israeli mainstream, no one, I think, longs for Israeli presence in Gaza. No one wants to see their kids serving in the military in Gaza, and I don't think that's what Israelis hope for. Israelis didn't want that. It is clear, though, that a new security situation was imposed on Israel by what Hamas did, and Israelis willing to feel secure that they can go back to the villages they were evacuated from near the border of Gaza. So I think that will be taken into account as well. In the short term, you may see military presence of the IDF inside Gaza to a certain extent. On the longer term, hopefully the international mechanism and the uh, empowerment of the PA will not make this a necessity anymore. You mentioned there that far-right faction which are at large in the current government of Israel. Do you take seriously any of the more apocalyptic fantasies that they have floated? For example, somehow emptying the entire population of the Gaza Strip into Egypt? 
No, I think this is something that also creates damage to Israel's relation with Egypt, which is a strategic relation that has been sustained for decades, despite many challenges and ups and downs. This is one of the sustainable and stable pillars of Israel's national security and foreign policy, and statements like those that were voiced, including by not so extreme ministers within the current government. So there were voices even within Likud talking about have the Palestinians go to Egypt, those create damage. I don't think that's an Israeli policy. I don't think that's desired by Israel in, in any way. I think those in the government currently having those extreme ideologies most likely will not be in the next government. I think Israelis do not appreciate their policies and what they led to. Nevertheless, I think the situation is a bit more complicated because there may be a refugee problem in Gaza if the war continues and if it spreads down to the south or even without a an Israeli intention to push Palestinians to Egypt, I think that's something that Egypt may need to confront. Reportedly, Egypt already prepared maybe some buffer zone or something to be able to absorb at least some. I hope it will not happen, but it's definitely a scenario that people need to, to think as a feasible one. I've left what is probably the most optimistic scenario till last, because just at the moment, obviously, optimism all round is in short supply. But is there any hope that this might prompt a proper rethinking among Israeli governments and potential future Israeli governments about what a long-term settlement with the Palestinians could look like? I mean, Ehud Barak, former Prime Minister of Israel, has said in recent weeks that we have a compelling imperative to disengage from the Palestinians to protect our own security, our own future, our own identity. He does seem to be there advocating, I guess, a setup in which you have two established neighbours who don't talk to each other very much. But does even something like that seem plausible from where we are now? It will not uh, happen overnight. And it's a difficult scenario to make feasible, but it's feasible to make it happen. In a way, we are in a lack of optimistic narratives at the moment. You know, people are very negative, very pessimistic about the future. And there's not a whole lot of people charting positive path forward from this situation. But if you look at the history of Israel-Arab relations, you see that quite often after major negative events, you know, like the 1973 Yom Kippur War, from an Israeli perspective, eventually after some transformation, it did lead to breakthroughs in Israel-Arab relations. At the time, it was the Israel-Egypt peace accord, but other happened as well. So those of us who want to see peace between Israelis and Palestinians need to take the responsibility and try to advance those optimistic scenarios, even if they seem a bit difficult. And definitely the two-state solution is the optimistic scenario at the moment, at least for those in the peace camp. Some advance this uh, solution because they care about Palestinian self-determination and issues like that. Others do it from a purely Israeli interest position, like what you mentioned, a former prime minister doing, but whatever the motivation is, I think that's the direction that policy should be advanced. Now, for that to happen, you need to see the leadership changes in both sides or uh, a different political system, definitely in Israel, probably also in the Palestinian Authority. Some obstacles to the two-state solution may be dismantled now. First, the divide between the West Bank and Gaza. Second, the belief that you can really sideline the Palestinian issue and things can continue as they were forever. So I think the Israeli society has moved on both, is seemingly looking for a new leadership after the war, and it might be that this leadership will be more moderate, coming from a security background, more reasonable, not a peacenik, not a leftist uh, government, uh, unfortunately, but definitely one with which progress could be made, at least on a gradual process.
Nimrod, thank you for joining us. That was Nimrod Gorin, Senior Fellow for Israeli Affairs at the Middle East Institute. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. This is The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. Part of the problem with forging progress towards peace in the Middle East in recent years has been that Palestine has had not one leadership, but two. On the West Bank, Fatah, who aren't capable of such outreach, and in Gaza, Hamas, who aren't interested. Hamas's influence is in the process of being brutally reduced, but what or who else might be available? Well, Khaled Elgindi is author of Blindspot, America and the Palestinians from Balfour to Trump. He is also a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute, where he directs their program on Palestine and Israeli-Palestinian affairs. He was also, from 2004 to 2009, an advisor to the Palestinian leadership on the West Bank on negotiations with Israel. Khaled, first of all, I want to go back to the event that launched us on the path of the last six weeks. That was Hamas's attacks of October. October 7th. Is it clear to you what Hamas thought that was going to accomplish from their perspective? Yes and no. It's clear that they wanted to deliver a shock to the Israeli system, which they obviously did. It's not clear that they even fully understood the scale of what would happen, both in terms of their own attack and Israel's response. I have the impression, based on a lot of the analysis that's been coming out over the past few weeks, that the operation may have gone even more successfully than they had anticipated, in the sense that they probably didn't expect to completely overrun communities and military bases with very little resistance. And so that created a lot more time for them to do the kind of damage that we've seen. Obviously, the very, very large number of civilians uh, that were killed. And it's hard to know exactly how much of that was planned, how much of it was chaos, how much of it was under orders, were Hamas fighters or other groups under orders to commit these kinds of atrocities, or were they spontaneous in the moment by you know the people who carried them out all of that's impossible to know but we do know obviously that there was enormous amount of planning that went into the operation and that they were planning to kill people and also to bring back hostages but maybe not quite in the numbers that we actually ended up seeing that said surely they would have anticipated a major response from the israeli side And it's hard to know what exactly the calculation was beyond provoking them and maybe even trying to induce them to mount a ground invasion in which Hamas folks would have the advantage on the ground over ground forces. You know, we can't read their minds after the fact, but there's also some evidence to suggest that the operation was so secretive that even Hamas's political wing was not aware of it beforehand. If that's true, then that's pretty remarkable. I mean, that is um, a mutiny, essentially, by the military wing. I mean, of course, the rhetoric since then by both the military and political leaders of Hamas have been, you know, completely in lockstep with one another. But, you know, beyond that, it's really hard to say what they thought Israel's response would be other than hugely disproportionate 
which is Israel's trademark, of course. Mm. Well, the reaction they have prompted is, of course, what we are seeing, and it is the expression of Israel's determination that Hamas will be removed from Gaza as a physical, military, political force. Is there an obvious contender of somebody or something to govern Gaza if Hamas is not going to be doing it? Well, the conventional wisdom would suggest that the Palestinian Authority would be the logical entity that would be the one to fill the vacuum as far as local governance in Gaza. But that's almost impossible to imagine. One, because the authority in the West Bank is already quite weak and not highly regarded. It's quite unpopular. It's probably even more unpopular in Gaza, where it's been absent for almost 17 years. And of course, doing so, you know, returning to Gaza on the backs of Israeli tanks would effectively seal their fate. And they're probably not going to commit that kind of political suicide. So on one hand, they're the logical party that would fill the vacuum. On the other hand, it's impossible to imagine how they could or would. Are those the only two options, though? Because as you've correctly pointed out, Fatah slash the Palestinian Authority is not well regarded or fondly thought of on the West Bank, and frankly, at this point, nor should it be. But in that gap between Hamas and Fatah, has nothing else emerged over that period of 17 years since the last time Palestinians were able to vote? Fatah and Hamas are the two dominant political forces in Palestinian politics. There are many other factions, some leftist, some independent, or some not terribly ideological, but they're all very, very small and have marginal uh, followings. Nothing comes close to the followings that both Fatah and Hamas have. So there's no clear political actor that would be an alternative. I suppose one could imagine scenarios involving civil society, although Gaza civil society has been decimated even before October 7th. You know, certainly afterwards, it will be very hard to recover. But you need something more than civil society. You need not just a governing force that can do basic services like taking out the trash or paying teachers. You need basic law and order, and that requires some sort of actor in the security realm. Is the Israeli army going to remain and and actually um, reinstall some sort of military government that would rule the population? That seems unlikely. Other possibilities might include, you know, there's a lot of talk about some kind of multilateral international force or the United Nations itself. There are some precedents for a kind of peacekeeping force or interim governing force in various conflict zones elsewhere. But there's really no clear thinking in Israel, certainly, about what comes after. And in Washington also, there isn't a lot of clear thinking about what should come after. And that's really quite dangerous. When you go in and you essentially destroy something without a clear plan of what is going to replace it, that's highly, highly problematic and usually doesn't end well. It does seem a long way from where we presently are, but do you see any prospect that some sort of peace process could emerge from this, some sort of reinvigorated peace process, if these events of the last six weeks have made it clear that the status quo just didn't work, or at least it didn't work in the long term. It served Israel's purposes for a certain period, and now it does no longer. Could there be a 
a revival of that line of thinking, and it was uttered again by Ehud Barak, former Israeli Prime Minister this week, that he said that though he's not consumed with sympathy for the Palestinian cause just at the moment, he does recognise that a two-state solution is the best chance both peoples have for relative peace and security. That may be true in the abstract, that a two-state solution remains the best option going forward, but it's hard to imagine how any of that would happen. The Biden administration was quite comfortable with the status quo. Before October 7th, they had completely deprioritized this issue. Clearly, all of the assumptions that the U.S. Middle East policy were built on proved to be faulty. And the Palestinian issue was not going to sit quietly on the shelf indefinitely forever. And so now they're having to play catch up. And we're hearing Blinken and others reprioritizing the two-state solution. And there needs to be a political horizon. And there seems to be genuine urgency in what they're saying. But it's literally the worst possible moment that you could pursue something like that when we've seen massive death and destruction, which is not even over. We don't know how this ends. We don't know what Gaza looks like at the end of this. Are there Palestinians in the north? Does Gaza City still exist? Do the one and a half million displaced Palestinians have any place to go to? Those are the kinds of concerns that are going to consume certainly Palestinians in Gaza, but also I think the international community going forward. The priority will be on humanitarian relief, reconstruction, some kind of stabilization, rather than a political horizon where, frankly, the pieces just aren't there. You have a a weak and unpopular Palestinian leadership in Ramallah that grows more and more irrelevant by the day. You have a far-right government in Israel that is not only committed to dismantling a two-state solution, but elements of that coalition are trying to erase the notion of a Palestinian nation. And as we see in the West Bank, they are sort of running amok there with their settler allies. So how do you get to a two-state solution where neither of the two parties are capable or in some cases even interested in pursuing that? Just a final thought then, and this is a somewhat hypothetical proposition, but it's not impossible that that far-right Israeli government might be turfed out reasonably shortly after these hostilities have been concluded, which will hopefully be sooner rather than later. If they were replaced by a government which was willing to think pragmatically about the future and about what security for both peoples would look like, who would be the most likely Palestinian interlocutor for an Israeli government of that sort if we examine the current plausible contenders? Well, I guess I would answer the question with another question. Who would be the Israeli interlocutor that would actually fill that role? I don't see anyone on the Israeli political landscape who is, I mean, there's Ehud Barak, of course, but the left, the Labour Party in Israel has been completely decimated. So I'm not sure that Barak has an actual constituency. Most of the parties of the Knesset are right-wing parties or center-right parties. So I don't really see a constituency that would push for a two-state solution on the Israeli side. On the Palestinian side, certainly the current leadership of Mahmoud Abbas is not the right interlocutor. The problem 
is we don't know what happens after Mahmoud Abbas's departure. We don't know what kind of power struggle there will be within Fatah. We don't know what the status of Hamas will be. Will they still be viable political actors? I, I would imagine they will still exist in some form or another, at least politically, if not also militarily. But what will be the relationship between Fatah and Hamas going forward? Will there be new political forces that emerge? One figure that is talked about often is Marwan Barghouti, who is a very popular Fatah military leader who is now serving several life sentences after being convicted in Israeli military courts. And he's regarded as someone who is sort of a unifier. Uh, He's quite popular. He has his resistance credentials. He has the respect of both Fatah and Hamas leaders. He might emerge as a kind of successor and someone who who has the kind of legitimacy that would be needed to sign a, a conflict ending deal with Israel. You need to have someone with a strong political following domestically. And right now, Mahmoud Abbas is not that person. That was Khaled El-Gindi, a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute and author of Blind Spot, America and the Palestinians from Balfour to Trump, which is available now. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. It is, as this episode has already abundantly demonstrated, impossible to know what the future may hold. It is certain that the wider Middle Eastern region will have a lot to say about it, but as the history of this conflict has shown us, having a lot to say about it and being willing to do anything about it are two very different propositions. I'm joined finally by Sanam Vakil, Director of the Middle East and North Africa Programme at Chatham House. Sanam, first of all, what have you made of the response over the last six weeks to Israel's assault on Gaza from other Arab countries? Does it strike you? that it's been no more or less than they might have been expected to say, like they're kind of phoning it in a bit? I think that's a bit harsh. I think the region, and obviously we can't lump them all together, has been really caught off guard by the October 7th attacks and, of course, the subsequent Israeli invasion of Gaza. And I think each country has their own concerns and dynamics. If you lump them all together, they're all very deeply concerned, primarily about the humanitarian space and the what they perceive to be the hypocrisy of the West in defending Israel and not protecting Palestinian um, civilian life in the same way that Western states did so in the context of Ukraine. Secondly, they also have regional security concerns and they don't want to see the war escalate with many other countries piling in, including Hezbollah and the like. But beyond that, they have their national interests that they're trying to protect. In many circumstances, those national interests are driven by economic priorities as well. Is it not the case, though, that some of those national interests, especially including Egypt's, are actually quite congruent with Israel's interest in that there's probably not a lot of remorse at large about the prospect of Hamas being dismantled? Again, I think that it's a bit more complex than that. I don't think states across the Middle East have a lot of love for Hamas. In fact, there is a lot of criticism and they see Hamas as a threat not just for the violence and what uh, we saw on October 7th, but the group's ideology 
is akin to Muslim Brotherhood ideology, which has been a point of very serious tension that emerged in the 2011 Arab Spring. And most Middle Eastern states are trying to clamp down and contain the Muslim Brotherhood because they see that ideology as akin to or giving birth to broader radical elements across the region like ISIS or Al-Qaeda. Are there any Arab countries in particular who have, I guess, the necessary economic, political, diplomatic bearing to influence the outcome of this? Is there anybody in any Arab capital that Israel would listen to at the moment? No, I don't think one country on its own. And I think what we're really seeing is that the collective weight and force of the Arab world isn't enough to prevail upon Israel. It is very uh, interesting that we have some Arab countries like the UAE and Bahrain that have recently normalized ties in the Abraham Accords that are using back channels to try and contain dynamics. You have the Qataris playing a very important role in negotiating the release of over 200 uh, hostages. But I think, you know, one of the key players over a longer period of time will be Saudi Arabia that uh, prior to October 7th, was in talks with the United States and Israel about a broader normalization agreement. And as part of that agreement, they were trying to elevate the issue of Palestine and the lack of self-determination and statehood for Palestine. And that, of course, is definitely going to be revived when the time comes for those sort of discussions. But on the basis of those Abraham Accords and that anticipated normalization of relations with Saudi Arabia by Israel, there was a widespread assumption, which I'm sure you're familiar with, that this also signified that the rest of the Arab world had kind of moved on from the Palestinian issue, that they just lost interest in it as intractable, no longer useful to them. Do you think that was in fact the case? Yes and no. I mean, you did not have any strong Arab state initiative prioritizing Palestinian self-determination. Arab states continued to operate under the hope that one day the Arab Peace Initiative, that is two decades old, that would uh, provide normalization on the basis of statehood uh, for Palestine as the backbone for negotiations. But recognizing that there was no real peace partner in Israel and, of course, challenges within the Palestinian leadership, there had been a very clear shift in the region where, again, Arab states, and particularly in the uh, GCC and the Gulf states, they were primarily focusing on their domestic and national interests, which were not aligned with the collective Palestinian or collective Arab popular interests on Palestine. That Arab peace plan you mentioned, which the Arab League, I think, first signed off on in 2002 and has since re-endorsed a few times, is that still seen as the ideal outcome, at least according to the consensus of the states who signed it? Are there not Arab countries who would have their own, especially security-related concerns about what a Palestinian state might mean, thinking especially of Jordan and Egypt? Well, currently, the Arab Peace Initiative is the principle that brings most of the Arab world together. The actual irony is that the one country that's uncomfortable with the Arab Peace Initiative is Iraq. And that's because the Arab Peace Initiative was signed in 2002. And of course, Iraq was subject to its own war and an American-led occupation from 2003 on. So this new Iraqi government and composition in Iraq hasn't 
quite signed on to this concept. And of course, Iraq has its own dynamics and relationship with Iran um, that, you know, is also worthwhile considering. No solution will be easy nor unified, but certainly whatever comes next in terms of a political discussion and a political settlement should have collective Middle Eastern buy-in from all of the Arab states, but I also believe also from Iran. Iran is an interesting aspect of this because there have been signs, have there not, in the last few days especially, that they are seeking to tiptoe away from this somewhat, that they've signalled that they have no desire for any escalation? The Iranians, I think, from day one have been quite clear. It's just that there's been perhaps mixed messaging between actions and words. Um, From day one, the Supreme Leader was clear in his disassociation with the attacks of October 7th, stating that while, of course, Iran supports Hamas and supports Palestinians, it wasn't involved in those attacks. Mind you, Iran has a broad network known as the Axis of Resistance that it works in coordination with. That includes Hezbollah groups in Syria, Iraq, and in Yemen. And those groups have operational agency. And we've seen that agency play out when the Houthis have launched some strikes on Israel, as there's also been sort of a low level back and forth across the Israeli-Lebanon border where, you know, over 100 people have died. But that doesn't indicate Iran's intent to escalate, nor does it indicate Hezbollah's intent to escalate. They could be driven by rhetorical opportunities. You know, this is also a moment where they can show Israel's weaknesses. And at the same time, they're in clear messaging, also saying that they too are prioritizing their domestic interests, their economic concerns, and ultimately the need for no regional war. Just finally, then, and in the shorter term, one prospect which has been floated about Gaza, and we've discussed it elsewhere in this program, is the idea of the wider Arab world being involved in the reconstruction and or future governance of Gaza. How much appetite do you think there would actually be for an arrangement of that sort? I don't think that there's going to be too much appetite for Arab governance in Gaza. And I think that you're hearing Arab states, particularly the Egyptians um, and also some Gulf states making that clear. What they probably would like to see is sort of a limited multilateral arrangement uh, for Gaza, but that ultimately builds back indigenous Palestinian leadership. Uh, in Gaza as well. So, uh, you know, what comes next is going to be slightly more complicated. And I think the expectation is, of course, that many Arab states, and particularly Saudi Arabia alongside Qatar and other Gulf countries, would be important contributors to the rebuilding of Gaza. But I think that that process is also going to be linked to uh, political settlement. And Gulf states are not uh, just handing out their money anymore. They want to have outcomes that also suit their needs. Sanam Vakil, thank you very much for joining us here on the Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.